to John Swinfield's Big Business Podcast. And now, let me introduce your host, journalist and writer, John Swinfield. Hello, I'm John Swinfield. Welcome to Big Business. I'm a journalist and television producer, and I've spent much of my life writing and making films about business bosses. I hope you find this pod gossipy, irreverent, informative, and even fun. If you like the feed, please don't forget to click the subscriber button. Big Business is on every week at 11am GMT on Wednesdays. Colin Chapman was one of the most gifted and influential automotive engineers of the last half century. I knew him as much for his fiery temper as for the brilliance of his technology. The founder and the guiding spirit behind Lotus Cars, he was a once dominant force in Formula One. He won seven Constructors' Championships, and his drivers won six World Championships. In Grand Prix paddocks, he and his black and gold John Player special cars were a legend. He started Lotus in 1952. It built a reputation for fast, lightweight road cars with exemplary handling and steering geometry, qualities axial to his racing cars. As a pioneer of ground-effect cars and aerodynamics, he revolutionised Formula One. He had strong commercial instincts, being among the first to have sponsors' logos, good or bad, on his race cars. Over the years, he and I became friends. I made a half-hour ITV documentary about Lotus and Collins driver Emerson Fittipaldi, the smiling Brazilian who won the F1 World Championship in a Lotus in 1972 and won it again in a McLaren in 1974, giving McLaren their first World Championship title. After the German driver Jochen Rindt was killed in a Lotus at Monza during practice for the Italian Grand Prix in 1970, Colin made Emerson his lead driver. Emerson spoke little English. His wife Helen spoke on his behalf. In a curious way, it enhanced my film's charm. She was clever and personable, but like all wives, she hovered between delight and terror as her husband hurtled round the track. Drivers were being killed with a shocking frequency. Colin Chapman very nearly quit F1, his lifeblood, when his close friend and brilliant driver, the Scott and double world champion Jimmy Clark, was killed aged 32 in a Lotus at Hockenheim in Germany in 1968. Colin Chapman was volcanic, bursting with mischief and temper and energy. I can see him now in his black shirt with the gold motif of his sponsors, throwing his cap in the air as his cars roared to success. Or sitting laughing on a pile of tyres or an F1 toolbox in the pits. He was a pilot and sometimes flew his plane to and from Grand Prix, using an airstrip at Hethel in Norfolk where the Lotus factory is based, close to Snetterton Racetrack where the Brazilian world champion Ayrton Senna cut his teeth. 
Chapman once gave me a lift in his aeroplane. It was misty, and flying aids were scarce at the little strip. I made light of it, but was apprehensive. For goodness sake, show some faith, Colin said. Am I insured, I wondered? Don't suppose so, he laughed. I once had a television studio chat show. Colin was one of my guests. We'd agreed that he'd bring in a racing car. Shortly before the show, he rang me and said, How the devil are you going to get this car over to your place and into the studio? Me, I said. Surely, Colin, you'll have it delivered. Oh, no, he said, we can't go wasting Lotus money on that sort of thing. You've got to get it over to your studio yourself. But surely can't you load it onto a truck, I wondered. No, I'm sorry, they're on F1 duties. It's a bit fast on the public road, but I think I've got a solution. If you get over here, you could take a chance on it. Keep it in first gear. The roads aren't too busy. The penny dropped. For a minute or two, he had me going. For centuries, the county of Norfolk in the United Kingdom was ruled by the Queen at Sandringham and a lair of aristocrats. Its business world was dominated by Coleman's Mustard and the insurance giant Norwich Union, now called Aviva. Then came a triumvirate of self-made tycoons. Colin Chapman, George Williams, a millionaire double glazer, and Bernard Bootiful Matthews, the Turkey King. George Williams had started out as a chicken sexer and founded Anglian Double Glazing, one of the biggest of its sort in the world. At dinner in my home with Alex, his young and lovely wife who came from Chile, George said he hadn't been able to find anybody to double glaze his house, which was how his company began. He told me, I went into the garage in the early hours and had a go at putting something together. I have very little money. I knew we'd got a future, but I didn't think it would grow as big as it did. Who could have imagined? Competitors copied George, but under his stewardship, his company grew to a considerable size, with 5,000 staff and a £150 million turnover. With half a dozen factories, he sold it to BET, British Electric Traction, for close to £34 million. He knew the rural area in which I lived. I used to come here sexing chickens, he said. It was a hard life and unpleasant, but it was one way of paying the bills. George Williams and Bernard Matthews and Colin Chapman were all friends. George's mill house in 80 acres with a nine-hole golf course, he also had a sizable estate in America, was near Bernard's 35-room Great Witchingham Hall, refurbished long ago, but which he bought for £3,000 when it was a wreck. When Matthews started his business, he shared the hall with hundreds of turkeys, rearing them in the Jacobean bedrooms. His bootiful catchphrase, delivered in a pronounced Norfolk accent on TV advertisements, fueled the success of the company and turned him and his business into household names. The son of a car mechanic 
He left school with no qualifications, but was good at maths. Yes, he told me, mental arithmetic. I was always quick at it. He worked as a trainee auctioneer, and at Aitl, a small market town in the Norfolk Broads, where there is a weekly auction. He bought 20 freshly laid turkey eggs for a shilling each, and a small second-hand incubator run on paraffin oil. Buying the incubator was the best thing I ever did, he told me. That was the start. But I hadn't taken into account the cost of feeding them. It was a basic mistake, but we all make those when we're young. I'd totally forgotten. You have to feed them. I'd overlooked it. But those eggs, those eggs got me thinking. After national service in the RAF, Bernard became an insurance clerk and later bought more turkey eggs and began Matthew's Turkeys, purchasing at some point the then derelict Great Witchingham Hall. He told me it had 35 rooms and we had turkeys in all of them. There's a photo somewhere of turkeys poking around, looking out of bedroom windows with their long scraggy necks. My wife and I shared the hall with them. We had turkeys everywhere, gobbling about all over the place, in the bedrooms, in the drawing room, up and down the grand staircase. We lived in just two rooms. There was no proper heating. It was basic, very hard. Matthew's turkeys became a livestock empire in the UK and overseas, a world leader. Bernard's business and his influence were international. He advised Nikita Khrushchev, the fiery Soviet leader, on how Russia might modernise its poultry industry. Eventually, his trappings of success would include the customary private jet, a Rolls-Royce, a super yacht, and, of course, a villa in Saint-Tropez. When I asked him how rich he was, he said, Mind your own business, John. Would I ask you what you're worth? I said he could if he wished. I can be very private, you know, he told me. He wasn't scolding me. We were friends. It was just his way. But to those who didn't know him, it could seem brusque. He was deeper than his image as a muddy, red-faced, tweedy livestock king boasting on TV about bootiful turkeys. You don't build a global company like his without having a nimble brain, a real grasp of the industry, and a profound understanding of a competitive international market. Colin Chapman of Lotus Cars was the third member of Norfolk's ruling industrial triumvirate. There is a story that at a grand open-air soiree, held by George Williams, Colin arrived late while the party was in full swing. The downdraft from the blades of his helicopter sent hats, tablecloths and flutes of champagne flying. Bernard Matthews told me Colin always liked to arrive last. He'd wait until everybody had gathered so that they'd see him make a spectacular entrance. He was very clever. He had a big ego but he was always interesting to be around. In his world, you had to have ego and confidence, and you had to take chances, run risks. He believed in himself. At heart, of course, Colin was a showman. You could see it at Grand Prix races. 
He loved the atmosphere, the theatre, the noise and the excitement. He loved to win. He couldn't bear to lose at anything. Bernard would have known. He, George Williams and Colin, all had an unmistakable swagger. I was once driving past Snetterton Racetrack with a film crew when I heard an astonishing noise, the deafening whine of a jet engine but coming from a car. We drove in and swiftly set up the camera on its tripod and filmed as the car screamed at full tilt round the track, making this amazing noise. After a minute or two, another car came racing round the circuit, horn blaring and lights flashing. It skidded to a halt a few feet from where we were filming and out jumped Colin Chapman, like a man possessed, screaming and shouting, beside himself with rage, saying we got no permission to film. Colin grabbed me by the lapels and with a couple of henchmen made a snatch at the camera, almost knocking it off its legs. They wanted the film. This made the film crew and myself more determined than ever to hang on to it. If Colin was in such a lather, it must be far more important than we'd imagined. We eventually extricated ourselves, the film and camera intact, and beat a hasty farewell, Colin yelling and threatening that the roof would fall in on us. By the time we reached the studio, it almost had. He'd been on the phone complaining that he was testing an experimental engine and didn't want us to blow the gaff on its technical secrets. We assured him we only wanted to run a short film of a car that sounded like a jet, and we had no wish to divulge its engineering secrets. That night, ITN's News at 10 ran a clip of the jet car. I met Colin later, and he was all smiles, which was very Colin. Mount Etna one day, pastoral the next. I was, oh, perhaps a bit over the top, he said. Just slightly, I smiled. He went on, we spend a fortune developing stuff, and we don't want the competition knowing about it. I explained again that it was the noise, not the technicalities which had intrigued me. You TV guys are so trivial, he laughed. He was quite right, of course. When I was away for weeks on end making documentaries for ITV and Channel 4 in South America and Southeast Asia, nothing to do with the rich and powerful, but about the world's impoverished, George Williams and his wife Alex invited Bridget, my wife, to an alfresco Sunday lunch in the garden of their sun-dappled mill house. Willows wafting in the breeze, the river gently coursing by. The other guests were Bernard Matthews and Odile Martin, his French companion. As Bridget took a sip of wine, Bernard asked her how much she thought the sip had cost. She had no idea, but knew it wasn't plonk. That sip, he said, cost over £70. Bridget expressed suitable surprise and thought his inquiry amusing, if a little impolite. It was Petrus, one of the world's most costly, a hallowed label to those who care. One could say he was being flash and self-made, but he hadn't meant it like that. It wasn't his way. Like George Williams and Colin Chapman, Bernard Matthews was a proud man who travelled far and built a company 
of global clout. We went to a couple of George Williams's birthdays, flying out in a chartered airliner with a coterie of guests. Alex was always generous and had bought Maxim's in Paris for the day and night, one of the world's most famous restaurants, closing it to everybody except George and his party. Maxim's, with its sparkling Art Nouveau decor, breathes history. It's featured in several films, including Gigi and Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris. We were ushered in silence up the stairs and obliged to hide behind a heavy brocade curtain. At the appointed moment, the lights went up, the curtain swished back, the orchestra which Alex had imported struck up, and we all burst out to wish George birthday good wishes. George, Alex, Bernard Matthews and Odile had been dining on their own in the empty restaurant, eating George's favourite meal, bangers and mash. Well, what else would one eat in Maxim's? This is John Swinfield signing off. Join me for part two of this story next Wednesday at 11am GMT, when Romano Artioli, a car-mad Italian, buys the Lotus Car Company. You've been listening to Big Business. This is John Swinfield signing off. Don't forget to click on subscribe. I'm on every Wednesday at 11am GMT.